Hi, folks. Well, um, I'm about to interview Tim Dudlock, the uh, the third author of um, some three just fantastic books on um, on the Voices for Movement and, and what happened on Election Day. Um, I first encountered Tim when I was doing Web Diary, and out of the blue, he just he sent in a seven thousand word piece on um, dairy deregulation, um, and <laughs> and um, the whole the whole premise of it was the argument is there is no alternative but there are plenty of alternatives um since then he um he went to america and did a fantastic um, blog on the iraq war politics called road to serfdom and just after the herald finally deleted me because they didn't like web diary i think in about 2005 six i i met tim personally and he was about to embark on a um two-year project writing a blog for News Corp, finally deleted because he criticised the editor. Since then, he's written three books. Um, One, the the new front page, trying to work on what was happening with the the media um, as as, as social media came to disrupt it. He's done a book on the future of work, a book on the future of everything, and now he's done a book called Voices of Us, the Independence Movement Transforming Australian Democracy. So, hello, Tim. Hi, Marco. How are you? I'm pretty good. Now, I heard right after the election, a mutual friend said, Tim's so excited he's going to write a book. Tell me why you decided to write a book on the Voices for Movement. You'll have to tell me who the mutual friend was at some stage. Um, Peter Peter Clark. Oh, it was Peter, was it? Okay, right. Um, yes, I, I was a bit excited about it. Um, and I, I didn't actually pitch the idea of a book until after the election. Mm. So I really didn't have a plan of doing it before that. But I sat down one morning and wrote a... Um, you know, just actually write up a pitch and thought, actually, you know, that's actually pretty good. But my, my reason for wanting to do it was um, I, th- I I wanted to capture that moment. So although, I, you know, I would not align myself politically at all with the, the teal independence, so-called, um, I was very drawn to a lot of what they were doing around community engagement and was interested in that. And I just thought it was such an unexpected result that came about from that sort of community engagement. And that community engagement and that sort of, you know, um, democratic ideal um, is what's at the bottom of a lot of my writing for the last 20 years since back in the road to serfdom days in America. Um, and it was it was actually what my PhD was about as well. Um, and, and this was sort of... I, I wanted to... Um, capture the hope that I saw in that moment of, of these sorts of forces um, overcoming the usual cynicism that is portrayed around um, politics in Australia, by, partly by the politicians, but also by the media. And so, I, you know, I kind of just wanted to capture that, what I, what I saw as a pretty positive moment in, in Australian democracy. Um, I, I suspect you probably think I'm a little bit too... Um, 
naive or something about what what it actually meant. But but to me, it, it was a genuine, you know, despite my differences of opinion with that, um, you know, essentially the right of centre politics of the Teal movement, um, I, th- I thought it was a very hopeful moment and I wanted to get something down about that. Yeah, it, it did strike me as I was reading it that it, th- what happened in 2022 election was almost a culmination of your particular intellectual obsessions over over the decades the 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 the, the need for more participatory democracy the um the, the your your strong critique about mainstream media and how its disaggregation due to social media was changing the landscape um your whole theory of neoliberalism and what that's done to identity and what's that done to dissatisfaction. I just thought, wow, like sort of like me in a way, you know, 98 Hanson, which was a, you know, Hansonism was a response to neoliberalism. 2004, not happy John, as you say in your book, it was John Howard who really institutionalised the, 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 the neoliberal idea that let's privatise everything um, let's um, rely on uh, culture war to get us up and let's really go for this um, elite versus ordinary people or elite versus battler. Let's, let's make that, that, that work. Um, so I just thought, wow, you know, um, you, you, must, you must have been just so happy in, in, in 2022. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really was... Um... I think it was the unexpected nature of it as much as anything that um, although, um, as you say, I'd sort of been tracing these trends for 20 years or, or so, um, and not, not just me, but a lot of people have been looking at those sorts of issues. Um, I, I, I don't think many people really predicted that the 2022 election would turn out exactly in the way that it did. And um, so it was quite startling to see um, especially those um, blue ribbon liberal seats fall to independence. I mean, it really does, whatever your politics are, it does really mark um, some sort of culmination of uh, change in the political landscape. One of the most interesting parts of the book to me was your tracing of the, the what would you call it, the, the trope um, that our politics has been elites versus ordinary people adopted by both parties and how that turned on itself by 2022 because all the rhetoric of the the government was actually directed against the uh, elites, the the wealthy, educated people in in their base. Um, Could you expand on on your version of the history of that and, and, and the the inevitable result that the base went, well, actually, we are elites and you're not representing us anymore. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting and complex process that um, we went through there. But certainly from around about um, the mid-90s or, or certainly say, say from um, when Howard was elected in 96, he really doubled down on this idea of, you know, battlers versus... Um, what he used to call the elites, and there became this whole rhetoric around um, the ordinary people versus the elites. One of the main kind of intellectuals who um, uh, 
foreground at this sort of thinking was Robert Mann, and I quote him mm. in the book. Um, he, I, I was, I actually was living in Britain um, in the early '90s, and when I came back just before the 1996 election, I was really struck by the um, the level to which this discourse of elites and ordinary people had was dominating um, media discussion, um, and. And it was very interesting. And as you say, Labor Party sort of got involved in it as well. There was this really strong movement within Labor circles suggesting that, you know, they'd abandoned their traditional base, that they'd, they'd allowed themselves to be taken over by inner city elites. Um, and the whole, the whole thing was um, the whole notion of political uh, engagement was formed around this idea that there was this... Um, ongoing and basic um, conflict between those two groups, and of course, it was it was it was much more complicated than that in reality. And and there was a lot of you know Howard and the Liberals were deploying these tropes um, a, as a way of um, hiding their own elitism. You know, they were the government. They 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 represented the the corporations and, um, you know, centres of capital in Australia, the idea that they were anything but elite themselves was was a complete nonsense. But they tried to line themselves up with, you know, ordinary people, with battlers. And, you know, Howard was pretty successful at, at, at doing that, at that rhetoric. Um, but I, I think gradually then over the years, it, it, it sort of set a trap for them in a lot of ways. Um, and the other thing that Howard did around this was he started purging so-called moderates from the Liberal Party because um, he, you know, he didn't want that. Any, anything, what we would now call woke, he used to associate with the elites. So he wanted to purge those sorts of socially conscious movements and issues around climate change from the party and, and actually go much further to the right. But all this was done under the cover of um, I'm doing this on, on behalf of the battlers. Um, so by the time we got to 2022, we, we had a, got to this stage where I think in doing that sort of banishment of so-called elites, what the other thing that had got swept up in it was um, the idea of expertise and specialised knowledge. And, and these were dismissed as elite as well. So you had this growing um, movement towards um, a, a hostility towards expertise of, of various sorts, which I think is really dangerous for a democracy. I certainly don't think experts should run a democracy. It, it shouldn't be a top-down methodology at all. But um, you, you can't banish experts and expertise from the democratic process. Life is just democratic life or political life or running a country. Anything as complex as a country needs expertise across a range of areas. So I think that whole elite popular debate transformed. And then within, I think particularly within electorates, as you say, like the inner city electorates, that turned teal in 2022. There was this real feeling that um, that base had been swept aside 
as well. And I, I think then, and what the argument I make in the book is that we went from sort of um, a, a discourse around um, elites and ordinary people. I think that transformed into something much more like a debate between insiders and outsiders. And I think the what I would call the political class, which is those most associated with politics, including the media, um, formed one block, and and they were um, they had disengaged from the rest of the citizens. So you had actually, you know, pretty well informed, um, successful groups and electorates across the nation who felt like they were on the outside of the political process and had no. Um, say in what was happening that their local members weren't really representing them and so that um, that feeling that they were outside the loop is part of what generated the desire to find these independent representatives and um, it actually worked pretty well for them. One of the things that um, struck me when I was reading the book like Obviously, there was legislative gridlock. You had a, a substantial majority of public opinion wanted serious action on climate change and wanted an increasingly corrupt governmental system cleaned up. And so you had disaffected Liberals, Labor and Greens coming together to, to, to say, well, you know, we can't, we can't get um, our people up, but we can get someone who can get stuff done on stuff that's important to us. And what struck me is that what, when you go elite um, versus ordinary people, it was only a particular elite that was inside the system and the professional classes yeah. and, and the people who, who got together with, you know, Democracy Now! and Accountability Project. In other words, civil society rose up in a, um, in, in a big way to um, engage experts with, with the people. Um, people were so disgusted there was a huge grassroots movement so you can really see it as the old elite um rising up against the new elite does that does that make sense yeah i think i I think there's definitely an element of that in it but i think what you said at the beginning sort of captures a, a key essence of what was happening is that that what i'm what i'm calling the political class which includes both major parties as well as the media and you know um, the, the bureaucracy, uh, etc., and all the other um, agencies um, associated with government, um, they had become um, a force unto themselves and were only talking to themselves and only governing in their own interests. And I think um, that's the alienation that people really felt. And and it, it came to a particular head, I think, because the, the nature... That, that leads to what I call in the book and what others call state capture. So this, this notion that, um, you know, various power sources within the society um, are, are really calling the shots for the... And, and that's being implemented by the political class, um, which is, you know, basically anti-democratic at the end of the day. Um, and I think people saw the corruption that comes with that. And mm. I think that's why the notion of um, a federal ICAC 
um, what, what do we call it now, the NACC, um, the, the idea of that had been growing for quite a while, you know, back at least to Cathy McGowan's time in 2013 when she was um, elected to Parliament. So um, I, th I think people really started to uh, understand that the system was, was probably more corrupt or at least self-serving than they had um, previously believed. And people became very uncomfortable with that. And I think that's one of the reasons, um, you know, one of the key issues for the community independence became political integrity and remains so, I think. Um, one of the... You've got, a, you've got a huge chapter on the whole development of neoliberalism and privatisation and... and core government services being outsourced for profit and all that sort of thing and, and growing inequality, like endemic inequality. And one of the things that really hit me was your description, um, which I think you're right. I think it actually could have changed the course of the election when Albanese got up and said, yes, I support a $1 a week pay rise for the, the uh, people on minimum pay. And the whole superstructure of the the big media and the big politics and the and the big business said, ah, got him. Yeah. And then it all changed, and that turned out to be a dreadful mistake yeah. by the by the powerful. That actually Albo connected with real people there, and people went, of course they should get a pay rise. Um, you, how important was was that moment? Do you think in in actually crystallising what had gone wrong? Yeah, I, th I think it was a really good example of um, ex ex exactly that, that um, it was just one of those moments that did crystallise it. I mean, it's kind of ironic. I mean, he wasn't... It, I, I think part of it, the part of what captured people about it was, you know, Albanese wasn't actually, you know, tearing down the means of production and, you know, <laughs> and, and taking things over. It was a very modest proposal. It actually kept the wage mm. rise below the rate of inflation, you know. So um, mm. it, it, it wasn't, if, if anything, it was understated what he was doing. But the reaction that he got from, I, I just remember seeing, I, I think I actually quote in the book articles from the AFR and um, and Scott Morrison's response, you know, mm. as if the communists had arrived at the mm. door with cannons, you know. It was just an insane response. And, of course, the, the Business Council and um, everyone, you know, just everybody, that, that whole, um, as you say, that whole superstructure of um, power basically representing capital against labour, um, just rolled all its big guns out and took him on. But it was just one of those moments where they misjudged it badly that people people obviously understand they haven't had a pay rise in a long time. We'd just been through a pandemic where we'd been asked to make incredible sacrifices. Um, a, during that whole time, because of that whole time, a lot of businesses were making, um, you know, super profits, mm. um, including places like Harvey Norman, um, you know, their, their profits went through the roof. And and here they all were turning around saying, you can't have a dollar a week pay rise. It was, you know, it's farcical. And the Harvey Normans of this world took huge JobKeeper based, based they, on fake predictions that they were going to go down, yeah. that, their, that their revenue was going to go down. And, and and the government didn't ask for it back. Yeah, didn't okay. ask for it back, okay. so just a little um, bonus um, Christmas bonus for them all, really. 
So another big part of your book is the media, um, which goes to uh, the, the previous example. But you've been on about this for a very long time, as have I, um, particularly through uh, Web Diary. Um, you said that you thought this was the worst ever performance by the, the political media. Um, I suppose I disagree with a little bit because I think 2019 was bloody bad too. It was really bad. Um, as you say, that he completely, Morrison had completely um, flummoxed the media and so they took it out on Shorten. Um, and there's a lovely um, part of your book where you say uh, all that, that horrible um, gotcha and attacks on Albanese, a couple of senior journos said it, it's because he's small target and hasn't got much policy. And I thought, oh, gee, look what happened to Shorten when he had a bit, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so you make a lot of points about how this election, which I agree with, um, has really put a uh, in, in lights the fact that the the old media had very little um, influence on the result, particularly in the uh, in the independence um, seats. Coast, could you tell us a bit more about your theory about what's happening in the media and how the the independence groups really? Said, "Oh well, we're not going to worry about that too much. We're going to go on. We're going to go down the ground. We're going to have our newsletters. We're going to have our social media, and we're not going to really reply to this to the tired old stuff about you're a front for Labor and you're a fake." Um, I found I found that element of your book very interesting. So, could you give us your overall take on that? Um, yeah, I think I think it's important to say that I don't think the independence movement could have been successful without the existence of social media. It wasn't the only thing, but it gave them another platform and they weren't... They, as candidates, and we as voters or as audience, were not limited to the mediation of politics that is normally supplied by only by the mainstream media. So, um, I mean, this had been happening for a while, like... Um, at, at, at least as far back as it, it started back with digitisation back in the late 90s and then through um, 2000. As you say, that's what my first book was about, the way um, digitisation changed the relationship between the mainstream media and their audience. It made the audience a player in, um, in uh, journalism rather than just you know, a passive spectator, a passive recipient of news. So all of, all of that, like a lot of these forces that happened, that came to a head in 2022, it had been building for a long time. So mm. I think it's important to acknowledge that, yeah, the, the independents really um, took advantage of um, that new media, digitised media environment, social media environment, and I don't think they would have been successful without it. Um, the... What actually happened with the mainstream media, and, and again, this is something that's been happening since at least the late 1990s, is they still really haven't come term, to terms with that new um, dispensation of media. They are still trying to run their businesses as if they were the gatekeepers that they once were. And they're very resistant to outside input. Um you're right. I, I, I did. I did cite the 2022 election as kind of the worst example. But I think 
they've, they've kind of the federal election, but I think they've even outdone themselves again with the Victorian state election. That that's just been shocking. The um, and and we're seeing today as we speak that um, Daniel Andrews looks like increasing his majority from the he's, he's winning an extra seat compared to the landslide he won last time, despite the fact that the media has been reporting it as neck and neck um, j- during most of the election. Um, so I think this this is just an ongoing problem with media that is particularly heightened um, around election time. They just constantly put it through this, um, you know, sports calling sort of thing um, frame. So they they see everything entirely in terms of the two parties. They haven't got outside the two party mindset. Um, you know, your your website. No, no fibs and um, and Transit's own podcast that you were doing with Peter and sometimes me, um, you know, they are the repositories of the real reporting, I think, on um, on the rise of the independence movements. You know, that that's the archive. The, most of the mainstream media were resisting, even engaging with this thing that was happening in, in these seats. Um, and I know for a fact that they were, you know, right up till election day, they were um, talking to people, you know, they were, they were convinced of things like, they thought Catherine Deves was a chance in Warringah, which is, you know, just such a farcical thing. Um, you know, she was never going to win in Warringah, but they're so trapped in that two-party mindset and they're so trapped in... It is... Um, I, I think it was particularly bad at at the 2022 federal election because of the relationship with Scott Morrison. He had really weaponized the whole idea of favourite journalists who got drops and um, information, and he managed that um, release of information from his government, you know, pretty professionally, it has to be said, um, and, and made it be known that uh, anybody who, who stepped outside that was going to be cut off sort of thing, which I know is, you would know better than me, is, you know, it's an ongoing thing in journalism that's existed forever, um, you know, th- those sorts of pressures. But I think Morrison really weaponized it. So, um, I, again, you had this um, situation where that you still had this centralised media model um, around reporting on this centralised um political model, whereas in fact, both politics and media had decentralised and dispersed and audiences and voters were much um, freer in their ability to look elsewhere, um, whether it was for uh, reporting purposes or for who they were going to vote for. And and the media just failed to capture that and they doubled down on this um, ridiculous confrontational stuff. The whole thing with, you know, they're, they're still doing... The, the fact that they're still doing the um, the buses that follow the politicians around and then all jumping out. Yeah. Pre- pre- I, I know you've been arguing against this for a long time, um, but it's it's still happening, and and it just got ridiculous. And I and I think the other the other probable turning point um, in all of this um, was the Albanese gaff thing, which they really you know. 
certainly he should have Well, the election was over, according to Andrew Proben and and, and others, and they kept going on and on and on about that that Albo was unfit because he couldn't remember an unemployment figure. Yeah, exactly. I remember my heart just sinking and going, oh, no, that's not what the election's about. No, and and even when um, Adam Barrett called them out on it during the election at the press club and said, Google it, um, you know, it didn't, you know, because that that got such a positive response from people because, of course, you can just Google it. This is the nature of distributed information in the world. And I mean, you don't have to hold every stupid figure or important figure in your head all the time. You can just look it up. We've all yeah. got access to that. And the fact... I, I, I would actually say it would have been better if Albanese knew that figure off the top of his head. But in, in any moment, anybody can get f- flustered um, and anybody could have Googled it. Um and, and it's not so much that they caught him out on that, it's the way that they doubled down and kept going on and on and on and on and on about it and, and saw it as representative of some major failing on his part when, in fact, it actually, the way they presented it, represented a major failing on their part. Um, oh, well, I mean, just as a personal thing, uh, before the 2019 election, I, I wrote an editorial saying... Um, the coalition's going to win when all the press gallery was saying the opposite. And this election, I said, the, the uh, Labor's going to win, not the Liberals, and they were all too scared to do it. It's as though they, they're, they're just in a, a, a bubble where they just speak to strategists and, and, and they're, not, they're, not with the, they're not with the people. Yeah. They, they're not on the, on the ground. They're, they're, not, um, they're, not, they're not listening. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, no, I, 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 I love that. I think that's Sorry. really that's all right. I, I think that's really true. The um and, and look, part of the reason um I was able to write that particular chapter um about the moon and stuff is because I'd had some involvement with you know, I'd been invited to talk to a couple of um voices of groups in Sydney mm. and had met with these um groups of people and you know, you've only got to spend an evening with them to realise how serious they were and how switched on they were and and that they were nothing like what was being represented in the media. So um, anybody who, who did that couldn't help but think, actually, maybe something's going to happen. Having said that, I, I was still surprised that as many independents won as did, but um, I, was, I think I was less surprised than a lot of people in the mainstream media. So one of your points is that you feel that the election was a, a, a serious turning point and that the, 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 the central issue from now on is how the major parties and the system handle the fact that 30% of the electorate is not with them anymore and we have a, a, a vastly increased uh, crossbench, small parties, of which, you know, One Nation and, and Pauline Hanson is a response to, to neoliberalism as well, um, that you've got um, uh, liberal independents, you've got Greens, you've got Catters. H- how is that going to be managed? Um, and if it's not managed, how we could have a genuine transformation where um, I know you want to get beyond representative to, you know, <laughs> to... Oh, proportional yeah. representation and uh, and citizens' assemblies, etc., which I, I don't really agree with. I'm more genuine representative. Like you see what the the independents are doing, and they're constantly feeding back. Their offices are filled with volunteers. 
Um, they're constantly getting experts in and having town halls. Um, so I, I sort of see that more as the go rather than what I would see as your romantic ideas. However, the, the, the fact remains that we are in a very fluid situation, um, which I, I was really pleased that you didn't say, oh, my God, you know, we're, we're free, that a lot depends on the party's responses, on people um, who will def either uh, want to infiltrate the movement or will create alternative climate 200s. Did, what's your sort of thought about how this could develop, given that no one knows? Yeah. Um, so, as, as I said at the beginning, the reason I wrote the book is because I wanted to grab this magic moment and sort of yes. um, preserve it and say, look what, look what we managed to do. But then by the time you get to the end of the book, I think I'm... I'm you know, like the, the dark cloud comes across a little bit. And as you say, it really d does depend on how people respond to it. I think the um, the key issue here is that I don't think that new 30% of people who are no longer attached to, you know, either of the major parties um is going to go away. That's been building for a long time. The primary vote for the majors has been dropping for a long time. It sort of hit record lows at, at this um, election. There's demographic changes that underpin all of this. The most amazing figure I've seen since the election came out the other day in the um, ANU's um, report on the election where they compiled data on, on what happened. And one of the figures that they presented was that um, only 37% of people in Australia vote the same way at one election to the next. Mm. So there's, there's no such thing really as a rusted on anymore, or, you know, it's a much smaller percentage. There are, there are obviously rusted ons, but, um, it's a much smaller percentage. A majority of people are switching votes from election to election. So I don't, um, and and that's manifesting as this what I call this elevated middle, um, this floating thirty percent of people who um, are quite happy to vote outside the major parties. Now, what what does that actually mean going forward? Well, you know, as long as our um, current system of preferential voting stays in place, a lot of those votes still flow back to the major parties. So we're still going to have a situation where, um, you know, one of the two major parties form government. But I think increasingly um, it's going to be a very narrow majority as it is now um, with a with a, a fairly substantial crossbench or the, the crossbench will actually end up with the balance of power on a much more regular basis. And I thought it was really interesting the other day um, in an otherwise um, sloppy article in the Sydney Morning Herald where they interviewed Peter Dutton and gave him what I would call free reign to um, set out his position. Um, but one of the things Dutton said was that um, if it came to it, he would be willing to do a deal with the tails, with the crossbench. And that's an incredible concession for the leader of the Liberal mm. Party to make. No other... Um, Daniel Andrews refused to give that assurance um, during his election, with good reason, as it turns out. Um, and, um, and certainly um, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese both ruled, you know, specifically ruled out any deal with the crossbench 
because they do, they don't want to admit that it's even a possibility that the crossbench would end up with the balance of power. So I think it's really telling that Dutton has said hasn't ruled it out. In fact, in fact, he specifically left it open as an option. So that tells me that you know he certainly doesn't think this floating thirty percent and this poss- ongoing possibility of minority government is going to go anywhere. So I, I think that's, you know, how, how it exactly plays out election to election is probably going to vary, but I, I don't think we're ever going to go back to um, a position where the major parties are getting 40-plus percent of the primary vote. I suppose the interpretation I'd make of Dutton's point is that he he knows he's not going to get those those blue ribbon seats back. So so that that he's sort of acknowledging that maybe the only way the Liberal Party and the Coalition can govern again is if they're in balance of power. You know, one of the things that I got wrong at the last election is as I was very very worried about that question of who you would support. If there's a minority government, very worried about the the independent ca- candidates in the in the blue ribbon seats, but they picked it. They said we'll make up our mind later, and that that the, they got you know tw- up to twenty percent of Liberal voters to say, okay, we'll leave it in your hands because you know your fate depends on on um, whether you on what you do, and and. and Really, when you, you think hard about it, if, if, the, if the three top issues are climate change, um, a federal ICAC and women's equality, they've really got no choice but to go with Labor. And it seems to me that those blue ribbon electorates decided that that was okay hmm. in the short term. Yeah, I, I think so, without, without a doubt, on, uh, particularly on those issues. But, but I also think um, and again, the ANU report sort of bears this out, that there is, um, that, well, there's, there's a couple of things happening, but, but I think a key thing is that people are no longer um, afraid of the possibility of minority government in the way that they were. Yeah. I think yeah. traditionally Australians saw it as unstable government. Um, I, I even quote Malcolm Turnbull at the time of the... What was the election before 2019, before Zali? 2016, when yeah. James Matheson yeah, when, stood when, in, in Warringah and Louise Hislop and her group yes. with $15,000, so much for big money, got yeah. a swing of 9%, yeah, 9%, that, paving the way for Zali. And and Louise Hislop tells the story of the they, they actually thought they were doing okay and Matheson might have got up, but the, the turning point was when Turnbull issued yep. um, a, a statement saying, for stability's sake, you need to vote Liberal. And I think that still really worked then. I don't think that works anymore. Um, I, I think people... Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is they're, they're not afraid of minority government, partly because we've had some experience of it, partly because people have recognised that's what we've got in the Senate anyway, and it still sort of works. It's nothing to be really scared of. It can be a bit messy and annoying sometimes, but, you know, it doesn't doesn't grind the country to a halt or anything like that. Um, so I, I, I think that's um, a really major change that's happened, as well as this drift away from the major parties there's just not that same fear 
of instability. And the flip side of that is that they've actually, I think people have actually realised that if you just constantly have uh, you know, a dominant two-party system where all power is divided between these um, concrete groups who control everything, that's when you get corruption as well. Mm. So I think um, um, a strong crossbench is seen as a check on the power of that um, of, of those major groups to fall into corruption or even into state capture. So, you know, that's the other side of stability. I'll take a bit of stability if I get a bit less um, corruption. Um, another thing I, I liked about your book is you got a clear sense of, of Malcolm's revenge. Um, it, it was it, it was it was stunning. It was stunning to remember actually that he was the one who stepped in to um, potentially save Tony Abbott in his his seat of Warringah. Tony Abbott then basically led the charge to get rid of Turnbull, and from then on it was on. Um, Turnbull did not did not endorse Sharma and went overseas. He's done a whole series of speeches about the only way to change. Um, on climate change policies to vote um, independent. He effectively endorsed the, the independence in, um, in a speech to Harvard University during the campaign. And you had a lovely line there that you'd heard gossip that um, maybe there was a move to form a true Liberal Party out of this independence thing. And, and Malcolm said the same thing to me last year, that there's a lot of talk about a, a new party. Um, I think that's one of the possibilities um, that might come out of this. I, I, I don't know what you think. Um, I, I think they would be very foolish to go down the route of a party. I think mm -hmm. um, I think their strength lies entirely in their independence from party structures. I'm even yep. a little concerned with um, what Kylie Tink's doing um, around candidates for the New South Wales election. It, it's starting to look a little bit, you know, like a bit of a party organisation. Um, it's you mean a, she's endorsing? Yeah, she's endorsing, but she's helping and um, with the Lane yeah. Cove candidate, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, I like, Monique I Ryan did the same in Victoria. Yeah. Um, she it, it was she endorsed Q and, uh, and Rob Bailey, her volunteer manager, went across. Yeah, and um, I, I think that sort of cooperation is fine, but they need to be very careful about not, crossing that line into a more formalised relationship because I think their strength really does lie in their independence. I think they know that. I don't think they need me to tell tell them that. Mm. So, but just in answer to your question about, you know, I, I think it is possible that someone like Turnbull does put together something. It's really hard to imagine for since the, at least the Second World War, with the four, you know, you've got to remember the Liberal Party was created by the IPA. You know, it wasn't the other way around. Menzies used their um, documentation as the basis for the Liberal Party. So, you know, and that was the forces of capital coming together to stand against the forces of labour. Um, it's really hard to imagine those same forces of capital allowing themselves 
to feel unrepresented in the parliament. Um, now, to what extent they can expect support from the independents is harder to say, but it's obviously much harder to corral um, a bunch of votes around a series of independents than it is to control a party sort of thing. So you could imagine the forces of capital, the Jenna Reinhardt's of the world, the IPOs of the world, the business councils of the world, um, wanting, um, if, if, if they decide that the current Liberal Party is, is actually too much on the nose and basically dying and never going to come back, it's really hard to say that they don't try and form another party um, that represents their interests. Um, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, but I, I think my main point would be that the, the current independents would be foolish to go down the path of party formation. Um, I'd have to say, Tim, that I think that the the, the forces of capital, that the, you know, the powerful, have already split. I mean, if you look at Simon's outfit, it was uh, very largely funded by big tech. Yes. And um, and also remember, we saw um, that the Business Council of Australia and the Australian Industry Group supported Labor's policy on forty three percent. I think that's one of the problems that the current Liberal Party has got is that there it actually has been a split in the establishment. It has moved across, um, as you say. Whether they want to formalise that, um, I don't know. Look, I'd like to finish with. Um, a very interesting quote that you had at the end of the book where you said that Climate 200 campaign financing is at loggerheads with the kitchen table grassroots approach to democracy that defines the voices of movement. Um, before I ask for your expansion of that, I don't know if you realise that Climate 200 said before the election that it waited for the grassroots to arise and prove they had a, a good candidate and lots of volunteers and, and independent fundraising, and then they came in and gave them a leg up. The new um, policy of Climate 200 is to fund startup community groups to build community, which personally I am shocked and horrified by because I agree with you that the whole voices of 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 movement is to is to listen to your electorate and and seek to embody that electorate and inspire locally um what do you think of the the possible tensions arising between uh climate climate 200 appro approach and the voices for indi the voices for approach yeah i I think it's been there from the beginning. You would know this. It has. It has. As yes. well as anyone. Um, the, and, and some of the uh, independent candidates have already refused to take money from um, from Climate 200 because they don't want to be associated with that sort of centralisation of money. Um, no, it's it's not that. It's not that, Tim. No? It's just in, in most regional and rural areas, you get back to elites versus ordinary. They go, oh, my God, here's the son of a billionaire. Here's these rich suburbs that, are, you know, haven't, haven't got to worry about, you know, putting food on the table and getting a, you know, uh, sure. and public services. Um they, they, they literally can't associate with Climate 200 because there's a backlash. And now that it's all it's, – it's called Teals, which is wealthy women in wealthy seats, it, it just doesn't work. And um, to me, the movement is being sort of broken up because of that. And we're – in the end, we're going to have to go back to state-based 
um, funding and rural and regional special funding, partly because I think of the oversized, ubiquitous influence of of, um, of Climate 200. Yeah, um, look, I, I, I don't want to be too down on Climate 200, to be honest. Um, I, I tend to agree with Jane Gilmore, who I quote in the book, the author Jane, reporter Jane Gilmore, um, who also ran as a candidate in the Senate. Um, she wrote a piece um, about the problems with funding and she made the point that, you know, we were kind of lucky with Climate 200 in the, in the candidates mm. that they funded this time around. And I don't, I don't think you can really fault them for that. I think their policy, as you say, they, they absolutely would say to candidates, you have to show us some level of support. Um, I, f- I forget what the actual numbers were, but you have to show us some level of support before we come in. I think that was the way to do it because um, I think um, Tony Windsor used to do this when he was asked to, um, you know, support an independent candidate. He would say, well, I'm happy to do it, but, you know, you have to show me that you can get a 1,000 people uh, into a town hall somewhere before, you know, I can... It, it's kind of worth my while or worth your while um, to pursue this. Um so, you know, I'm, I'm not really critical of what they did, but I think as an ongoing thing, um, that sort of campaign financing has real risks. Um, it just becomes another source of influence. And, and I would like mm. to see some sort of um, uh, open to, you know, influence peddling and all the things that we don't like about politics and all the things that override the advantages of genuine community organisations. So, you know, I, I, I said on Twitter the other day, you know, the most important thing for the rise of the independence wasn't Climate 200, it was their community engagement. Mm. And, I, and I think they... Absolutely. Really, I think they really need to cleave to that and be a bit careful that they don't... Um, it's not even a matter of over-professionalising the thing, but, you know, just sort of keeping that money influence out of it. I think you make a really good point about the split in capital between, you know, the traditional extractive industries that have dominated Australian uh, economy and politics for such a long time and the rise of this tech money um, that's starting to become a factor. So you you do have a split on that side, um, but you don't just want that that tech side to become... (laughs) you know, the new um, Lang Hancocks of the world or whatever, Jenna Reinhardt's of the world, um, you want you want to keep the system as open and fair as possible and for that ability of communities, of candidates to emerge from community consultation. And money often kills those sorts of processes rather than helps it. Well, Tim... Um... I, I found your book incredibly thought-provoking and it's sort of, the way I see it, it's sort of the first intellectual's attempt to, 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 to find a framework behind this potential revolution. I'm sure there'll be many t- more to come, but um, I'm so glad that you got excited and, and sat down and, um, and wrote this and um, I'd highly recommend anyone who's interested in, in what the fuck this all means to... Um, to, to have a good look at your book. Thank you very much for, for coming on. Well, thank you, Margot, and thank you for saying that. And, um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that you say it in that light. I'm sure I get some things wrong, but I think it was important. Very to... idealistic, very yeah, idealistic. And, and maybe, too, <laughs> maybe too idealistic, but I think it was important. Why not? Why not? 
yeah, I think it was important for someone to step back and try and put it into that framework. So I'm glad you said in like that light. So I really appreciate the comments. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed this Nightbibs podcast. Until next time, goodbye.